Well, I want to invite you back to the fourth grade with me. Back to my fourth grade class. Yes, a moan. Some people remembering what fourth grade may have been like, but my fourth grade was not that exciting. Actually, fourth grade was pretty difficult for me. There was a period of several months within the fourth grade where a number of these young guys in my class decided to pick on me as a focus of their hostility for some reason. And so every day at recess, they would create games to pick on me. It's pretty bad. They would make games up to pick on me with about five to ten guys. And I just remember during that season of life, always just anticipating the bell to ring because the bell, when that rang, it was my escape. It was my salvation. I could go back into the school, into the safety of a classroom where there was an authority who would no longer let these little boys make fun of me and hurt me both physically and mentally. And I'm not really sure why they saw fit to pick on me other than maybe God allowed it to produce in me some steadfastness that would come out later when I served him. But I do remember there was a few things about me that may have given them some fodder First of all, I wore sweatpants every single day, right? Sweatpants are super comfortable. They come in all sorts of colors. Why wouldn't you wear sweatpants every single day? I didn't see anything wrong with that. It wasn't really fashionable at the time. That was the time when my parents got a divorce. Maybe there was a lot going on there that made me an easy target. And I remember, this might surprise you, one of the things they would call me, because I had this luscious head of hair that was just so puffy, they called me Puffhead, Right? And if any of those boys are watching, ah, the joke's on you. I'm no longer Puffhead anymore. (laughs) You might share some of those experiences with me. You might share some of those attributes. And we might have some common bonds when it comes to how we grew up and some of the things that we went through and maybe some of the torment we've experienced from other people throughout our lives. But even if you haven't experienced that, we do share one thing in common that will bring hostility into our lives. See, if we align ourselves with Jesus Christ, we are promised by Jesus himself that we will be persecuted. You and I will be persecuted in our life if we have put our trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 20, he said, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And then what does Paul say to Timothy? In 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Do you desire to live a godly life? Well, how do we live a godly life? We know God's word and we do his word. We're obedient to his word. And so as we're going through this morning and we're unpacking James 5, 7 through 11, we have to ask ourselves if we're not being persecuted, are we seeking to know God's word and are we seeking to live it out at all costs? That's a question that we really do need to ask ourselves as we come before a text like this. But ultimately, what is Christian persecution? I want to give you a working definition to build off of this morning. Experiencing hostility or cruel treatment because of your obedience to God. Experiencing hostility or cruel treatment because of your obedience to God. If you're not there yet, please turn with me to James 5. Starting in verse 7, we're picking up where we left off last time. If you remember, we talked about the first six verses where we went through this experience that these wicked rich 
these short-sighted rich people building their kingdom on earth, they, they end up persecuting Christians, the righteous. Well, James is going to flip the script this morning, and he's going to, in 7 through 11, talk about the righteous, these Christians. What do they do in light of the fact that they're being persecuted? Well, let's find out. Please read along as I read 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it? Until it receives the early and the late rains, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The word patience here in our passage this morning is likened to this idea of being long-tempered, this idea of having a long fuse. There's these persecuted Christians, and their desire in the flesh is going to be to get angry and to be hostile back to those people who are persecuting them. But he says, be patient, be long-tempered, have a long fuse. We're called to respond to the persecutors in our lives like Christ did on the cross. He had the mindset that the Father is in control, and he trusts him. He had this mindset that these persecutors, they need to repent and put their trust in Christ because if it wasn't for Christ, if it wasn't for the strength that we gain from having the Holy Spirit, we would be just like them. We have to have compassion on our persecutors. And ultimately, the Father will come to judge everyone and vengeance is his. Even Christ trusted that when he had all the power to destroy everyone who was crucifying him, the very people he was saving There's been no one more misrepresented than Jesus Christ, so we're in good company. But now, the only reason you can ask somebody to ultimately be patient through a trial, through persecution, is because there's a sure end to it. You wouldn't go to someone on death row and say, be patient. We're not sitting here as Christians on death row just living a miserable life of persecution with no hope. No, we are waiting for something. Ultimately, if we don't find relief in this life from persecution, where will we find it? Point number one, please write down, patiently endure persecution because of who's coming. We can patiently endure persecution because of who's coming. Verse 7 starts out, Be patient, therefore, brothers. But how long shall we be patient? He says, until the coming of the Lord. Now, the coming of the Lord could also be translated to the word arrival, this presence of the Lord. The Lord will come and be with us. So we should be patient in persecution until the arrival of the Lord. We're going to find out why when Christ returns, he's going to bring something with him. So we need to be patient until we meet him face to face by his coming or he takes us home to him in this life. As James points out, the farmer, they have to be patient. We all understand the concept of farming. There's very little that you can do within farming to produce an outcome. You have to do the very few things God's given you, and then you trust it to the Lord ultimately. It takes a lot of faith to be a farmer. When he talks about these early rains, they they would arrive in the fall, sometimes around October or November. In the late rains, they would come sometime in March or April. So you can see there's a big gap here of waiting on the Lord as a farmer. But something that I found fascinating was that 
one commentator pointed out every reference to early and late rains in the Old Testament had to do with God's faithfulness. So as sure as the farmer can bank on God's provision, James is saying we can bank on Christ's return. Although faithful believers can disagree on the timing of end-time events, every Christian should live in light of the inevitability of Christ's return. It will happen. Christ is coming. As one theologian pointed out the statistics, scholars have identified 1,845 different biblical references to the second coming of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, 17 books mention Christ's return. The New Testament speaks of it in 23 of 27 books. One out of every 30 verses in the New Testament teaches us that Jesus Christ is coming back. Amen? That's a big deal to us Christians. The only way that we can patiently endure persecution is if we believe that Jesus Christ is coming. If it was anyone else, we would have every right to start to become impatient, but we wait on the Lord the only one who can take care of all of this to make everything right. I mean, Paul ends his first letter to the Corinthians saying this, Paul, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Oh, our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, you got two phrases that you hear a lot from Pastor Ben right in here. So we're going to learn this morning why he says them. What does Pastor Ben say at the end of his messages when he's dismissing you guys? Maranatha. That's what Paul says right here. Our Lord come. Maranatha. That's what that means. This is the same man, Paul, who said to live is Christ, to die is gain because there's nothing better than to be with Jesus Christ. And when Paul said that, when he was desiring to be with the Lord, you remember that turmoil that was within him? He was thinking, man, I can go. I can end my life right now by going to certain places. I know I could go to Jerusalem right now and I could be martyred and it would be great to be with the Lord, but I've still got a mission to accomplish because sometimes we can be accused of being escapist by thinking so much about the Lord's coming. It's quite the opposite. We desire to be with the Lord. That's what we should desire, but we do have a mission to accomplish and all the more because Christ is coming because we anticipate his arrival, his presence, and we anticipate being with him for eternity. We should desire to go be with the Lord that should be a desire of ours because we love him. If we were a long ways away from our spouse or someone that we loved, even if we had a mission to accomplish wherever we were, we would still desire to go be with them, even if we knew the responsible thing was to stay and do what we've been asked to do. Now, the coming of the Lord is about the who far more than it is about the when. Should we all study eschatology and understand the end times and what we believe about the Lord's coming? Absolutely. But when our focus on when outweighs the who, we're in dangerous territory. It's always about the who. Now in verse 8, it says this, You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now the idea of establishing your heart is like strengthening your heart, working your heart out. I want to ask you, where is your heart? Where is your heart this morning? Is it entrenched in the things of the world or in the word of God? We must have our hearts entrenched in the word of God for us to not sin against our Lord and to prepare for his coming. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Prepare yourself to be with the Lord by being with the Lord. How can you be with the Lord? Through his word. Prepare yourself to be with the Lord by being with the Lord. If you're not in the word as a Christian, 
It's the equivalent of not breathing. This is our oxygen in the Christian life, is knowing the word of God. These are the words of Christ himself, of our God, who has spoken to us, who's told us how to live. And it's so pertinent when it comes to persecution. Those who are patient in persecution are those who, whose hearts are aligned with Christ through the word of God because his coming is at hand. And this is important now. I want to explain this to you. It's relevant now. And I want to give you a few examples of how this is relevant, how you can start to see it play out in your life right now, here and now. You might be in a scenario where you're saying, I'm being forced out of my job because I won't engage in LGBTQ initiatives. If it's not happening already, it will at some point. There'll be a dividing line in the sand. You're either with them or you're with God. You can either sign something or you can't. And you're going to say, you know what? I know Matthew 6. I trust God for my provision, not my job. That's why it's important to know the word of God, not just to check a box every morning and say that you're a good Christian. You go to Compass Bible Church, so I should know my Bible. No, you need to know the Lord and what his promises are. Because when you're being persecuted, you'll be put on the line to stand with Christ in his word or not. But you need to trust him. And you can patiently endure things like this because Christ is coming back to reign forever. The same God who wrote Matthew 6. You might be saying, I'm being cast out of my extended family because I'm considered hateful due to my intolerance of what the Bible calls sin. You know what you're going to do? You're going to pray for them to repent and trust Christ to pay for their sin because if not for the grace of God, there go I. You'll have compassion on them and pray for them and not fight back and retaliate, but show patient endurance because you trust the word of God. Worse yet, Perhaps it'll come down to the fact of saying, I'm being torn from my own wife and children and thrown into prison because I will not stop preaching the word of God, which is offensive to those who hate God. Well, I can trust God to take care of my family far better than I can because I trust the word of God. I understand how God works when it comes to provision and taking care of my wife and my children. Do you think God needs me to take care of them? He's called me to, and I should, but I should never deny his word. I should trust him. And even more so, Perhaps one day we'll be saying, I'm being killed because I will not worship a man or a man's system. And I can trust God, like Paul did, to say, to live as Christ and to die as gain. I know the word of God, and it helps me to patiently endure through persecution because Christ is coming back to reign forever. God is faithful to the farmer to bring the harvest, and God will be faithful to return to us our king. We need to stand firm and we need to stay ready. But we also need to, what? Be patient. Be patient in the middle of that. It's exciting to get fired up and to think about the return of Christ and we should be excited about that. We should be excited about our God and being with him. But now we must be patient because you're going to go out of here today and you're going to go live your life tomorrow and you're going to live a normal life in the middle of a sinful world with a flesh pulling you to sin and you need to be patient. We need to build the muscles of patience. I mean, what are some of the things that we can think of in this life that cause us to be impatient? Maybe traffic, especially up here right now. Maybe you're one of those people who's slapping the uh, Idaho's full sticker on the back of your car now. You're shutting the door behind you, right? You, can't, you made it to Idaho and you don't want anybody else to come because you're impatient with traffic, right? That's, that's something that tests our patience, right? Maybe, maybe pandemics. Now, let's just say pandemics, test our patience, right? Over the last couple of years, many, many things have tested our patience. We see 
things that we don't think are right or we think are foolish and unwise and rightfully so and we're put in situations where we have to be patient and trust the Lord. Do you think that's a mistake? God is growing our patience. He's using these things. These are gifts. Don't waste them. Traffic is a gift. Pandemics are a gift. I promise you, when we look back 100 years from now, these are the things that grew our patience to be enduring patiently through persecution. For me, maybe it's waiting for the Detroit Lions to win. I am a very patient man by being a Detroit Lions fan. Maybe it's waiting at the DMV, right? There's a few people here from California. That's a lot more. They need a lot more patience there than we do here. You have to take the whole day off to go to the DMV there. But you have to be patient. You were going to wait in a line for four or five hours and then talk to someone who is not kind? We experience those type of situations all day long, though. Those are the things that grow our muscles of being patient. And I've heard people say before, hey, never pray for two things in the Christian life. Never pray for patience or humility because God will give them to you in very difficult, in a difficult manner. But we do need to be praying for those things. We need to be praying for patience. And when we need to see these as opportunities to grow in our patience because these are muscles we need to build up over time so that we are not whiplashed by persecution. We need to trust the Lord in the small things so that we can be ready to be responsible in the big things. We want to be found waiting well. Waiting well for the Lord in the midst of persecution. Point number two, wait well knowing everything will be judged. Wait well knowing everything will be judged. Verse 9 says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, Speaking to these Christians, brothers, do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And I want you to put yourself in the sandals of these persecuted Christians that James is talking to. What happened? We know from the first six verses. These people were persecuted to the point where they weren't being paid money that they were owed. They were being withheld from doing a job where they can make money to feed their families. These people might be starving at this time. So put yourself in their sandals right now for a moment. They're being taken advantage of have lost their ability to feed their families, it would be easy for them to start retaliating out of frustration, wouldn't it? They're in a very difficult situation, but we should not give in to the temptation to deal with evil unbiblically. We cannot respond unbiblically. What did it say there in verse 6? You remember? He does not resist you. You're going to get taken advantage of as a Christian just because you're going to obey God and not resist people at times. But God's still in control of that situation. And as we'll find out, he will judge your persecutors as well. So there's a few things to keep in mind of James' comment on judgment, right? First, you will be judged. And we'll get to that in a moment. You'll be judged at something called the Bema Seat Judgment. So hold that off to the side for a moment. If you are in Christ, you will not be judged for your sins, but your persecutors will be. That's an important point to understand while we're looking at the idea of patiently enduring persecution. There's the great white throne judgment, where unbelievers will have to stand in judgment for their sin, and we know that they will be sent to hell to pay for their sins. The reason that you and I can be confident that we won't do that is because we put our trust in Jesus Christ, who died a substitutionary death on the cross. He took our sins for us. He bore our sins, and he stands there in the gap for us. We don't go and get judged at the great white throne judgment because Jesus Christ has already taken on our punishment. That's, we are saved from God's wrath. We are saved from God's punishment for our sins. 
But in light of the fact that these unbelievers are ultimately going to be judged for what they're doing to us, we should never avenge ourselves. And Romans 12, 19 makes it very clear. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When we take matters into our own hands, we remove an opportunity for God's glory. Even God's justice will glorify himself. James says in this verse, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Brothers, these Christians. Right? He doesn't want them to be judged for responding inappropriately to persecution. And that's where we come into play. If we put our trust in Christ, what is James saying to us here? Well, we will be rewarded or suffer loss when we come to the Bema Seat Judgment. When we're standing before the Lord, there is this concept of rewards and suffering loss. In 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15, it explains it. It says, each one's works will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So although we won't sit in judgment for our sins, since that was dealt with on the cross, we have to keep in mind that we do love Jesus Christ and we want to hear, well done. That's how we want to meet Jesus face to face. In Matthew 25, 21, it says, His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Don't we want to hear that? We don't want to be smoking as we come into the presence of the Lord because everything was burned up. We want to come into the presence of the Lord with him saying this. I want you to imagine that you're on an airplane and it's a smaller airplane. There's a pilot and there's four passengers. In the middle of your flight, something starts to go wrong and it's clear that this plane is not doing well and it's probably going to go down. At one point, the pilot says, this is not going to go well. It's going down. We should eject. We're high enough up that we can get out of this. And then they scramble around and they look for parachutes and there's only four. And so you start to scramble around and knock everybody over and grab one of them so that somebody else will die in the crash. Because you're afraid to die and you don't want to die and you want to be saved and you're only thinking about yourself and then all of a sudden the plane levels out. You're not going to die anymore. How would you feel, especially standing next to this person that didn't have the parachute? How would you feel in that moment? You freaked out in the middle of a catastrophe and didn't trust the Lord ultimately. Well, in this situation, I would say, let's think about it the same way. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant to the Lord, but we also want to have a calm trust in the Lord as the plane, this world, is going down. We already have our parachute on. It's Jesus Christ. We're not going to die a spiritual death. We might die a horrible physical death. That's possible. But Scripture's clear that no one can ever take our soul, that belongs in the hand of Jesus Christ and it cannot be taken from him. So we can wait well, desiring to receive the full reward from Christ and trusting that God will take care of my persecutors. But let's go back to verse 10 now. It says this, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. 
Now, this is a very similar statement in verse 10 to that of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. It says this in Matthew 5, 11, and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all, utter all kinds of evil against you. So Jesus is saying, you're blessed when you're persecuted. When they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, right? Don't get it twisted. Being persecuted for just being a jerk is not being persecuted for being a Christian. That needs to be said. Being persecuted on my account because you align with Jesus Christ. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. James and Jesus are encouraging us. We have this Christian tradition that should encourage us as a faithful people who did not buckle under the pressure of persecution. Point number three, gain courage from great examples. Gain courage from great examples. The Pharisees, they had this ironic tradition of persecuting the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Here are these men who are claiming to be the what's what of, Christian, of Jewish leadership, of, of God's people. And yet, over time and time again, they persecute the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Matthew 23, 29-31 says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the mountains of the right, monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. And I just want to bring up the fact that most likely, much of the suffering that you'll experience from persecution will probably come at the hands of professing Christians in this life. Remember our definition of persecution? Experiencing hostility or cruel treatment because of your obedience to God. You see, there's this thing that happens when it comes to false teachers. They don't like the word of God. They steer clear of it as much as they can. They steer clear of teaching the word of God the way that maybe we would do here at this church or faithful churches to exposit the word of God week in, week out. Because the minute that you put the real thing next to the false thing, it starts to expose the whole game, doesn't it? So when you have false teachers and people who are making, building their kingdom off the backs of other professing Christians, you get in their way and you'll be persecuted by them. If you hinder their selfish pursuits. And here's the thing. Based on history, I'm willing to bet that the greatest hostility you will ever face is when you deny someone else power or progress. When you get in the way of somebody else's power or progress as a Christian, just by obeying the word of God, you will be persecuted. And this should not come as a surprise to us. Let me give you a few examples. We say that human life begins at conception and killing a human at any age is murder. But someone might say, but I want to have autonomy over my life and my body. And if you tell them that the word of God says different, you'll be called an oppressor of women. You won't be called a faithful Christian. You'll be called an oppressor of women because you're getting in the way of what they want to do. We might say physical intimacy is a gift to only be experienced between a man and a woman and only in a marriage relationship. And unbelieving world might say, I want to experience pleasure on my own terms. And so what will you be called? You'll be called hateful for denying someone's personal definition of love. You won't be called a faithful Christian. We might say God created two sexes, man and woman, and they're distinctly different with different purposes to serve. I used to think anyone with a brain would think that, but 
we, we know that from Scripture. And they would say, I want to dictate my purpose and design my own body. Because ultimately, they hate God. And they don't like anything that God designs because they sit under their master, Satan. Again, we should have compassion on the lost, but we need to understand who they serve. Satan, who runs the world's systems and who hates God and anything that God has designed. That's why he systematically tries to dismantle everything good that God has designed, the family, which represents Christ in the church. How he's designed us as men and women, which ultimately dismantles the family. You see it time and time again, just unraveling the plan to dismantle God's design. Again, you won't be called a faithful Christian when you say that there's only two sexes and you teach your children that. You'll be called a child abuser for teaching your children this. You won't be called a faithful Christian. You'll be labeled something different. But that's important for us to understand because as we prepare for greater persecution in the Christian church, we need to know when it's actually persecution. Where we're sitting in alignment with what God says in his word and we're standing firm regardless of the pressure around us. In grace. Obviously, these Christians that James is talking to did it in grace and love. You might say, well, they were being taken advantage of. Yes, but they trusted the Lord, and we need to trust the Lord as well. But by God's grace, we have some incredible examples in Scripture of men who persevered despite these types of situations. I want to give you a few of them. Moses. Moses, he was mocked by his own stiff-necked people, as they were called. They were impatient. Remember, Moses was on the mountain. He's talking to God. God was giving him the commandments. He comes down. They were impatient. They wanted to worship their own way. We can relate to this. They, they were worshiping and partying so hard that it was mistaken for some kind of battle. I mean, these guys were going after it. They really were having a lot of fun worshiping this golden calf. And Moses got in the way of it. They didn't like it. How did Moses respond? He pleaded with God not to take them all out. Elijah. Elijah was tormented by Ahab and Jezebel. Do you remember this? Jezebel is this evil woman. She had massive political power. And this power, it was connected to this false god called Baal. Remember? And what happened? There was this showdown with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And they didn't come through because it's not a real god. It's just this figment of their imagination, it can't do anything. And so it doesn't call down fire or do anything that they ask it to do. And then God shows them up. And then Elijah orders all 450 of these prophets to be killed. And Jezebel goes crazy. This is her ticket to leadership and power. And Elijah is in the way by his obedience to the one true and living God. And then you have Daniel. Daniel's removed from his homeland Given a Babylonian name like his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's not their real names. Those are names given to them by their captors. He's thrown into a lion's den. But how did this all happen? Well, Daniel had these fellow administrators and satraps that didn't like Daniel. He was kind of the teacher's pet to Darius. Darius really liked Daniel, and he was climbing the ranks. And so they thought, we need to get this Daniel guy out of the picture, man. He's, everybody loves Daniel. Let's, let's find a way to get him out. But I want to read to you this passage in Daniel 6 that really shines some light on what lengths they had to go through to get rid of Daniel. Daniel 6, 4, and 5 says this. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Can that be said of us? 
That should be said of us. When people are going to persecute us because they hate us, they hate that our life is blessed by God. They hate that somehow we're rising in the ranks in our job because we actually follow what the word of God says and we're kind to other people and we're selfless. May it be said of us, man, we can't find anything wrong with this guy or with this lady. What are we going to do? This is what they do. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel, this Daniel, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. How amazing is that? The only way we're going to trip this guy up is if we make him try to disobey his God because we know he won't. May that be said of all of us. The only way that they're going to trip us up, our persecutors, is by putting us in a position where we have to obey our God. What a great place to be. And we see Daniel comes through. They make a decree that no one pray to any God or man except for Darius for 30 days or they'd be cast into the lion's den. And Darius doesn't know what's going on. It's actually interesting, right? If you know the story, Darius doesn't want to get Daniel in trouble. He likes Daniel. Kind of reminds me of uh, Herod and John the Baptist. Like John, he doesn't want to kill John the Baptist. Or you think of Pilate with Jesus. Something's wrong. Different with these guys. I don't, I don't want to have any part of this. There's something else going on here. They don't deserve to die. But Darius has to go through with the decree that he made. So Daniel, he prays. And he gets the consequence of being thrown into the lion's den. And God decided Daniel's life would go a little bit longer. So he closed the mouth of the lions and he survived. And then we have John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he was imprisoned and beheaded for his faithfulness to preach God's message. Remember John the Baptist, he didn't agree with Herod and Herodias' marriage. They were both married to someone else. Actually, Herodias was married to Philip, Herod's brother, And they both divorced and went with the other one. And John, he must have had the ear of Herod at some point. And he said, this isn't right. You shouldn't be doing this. And Herodias didn't like that. Maybe Herodias got some power out of this move. Maybe something happened where this was beneficial to her in many ways. You remember that birthday of her daughter where she's dancing and Herod says, anything you ask, I'll give it to you. She asked for John the Baptist's head and it made, made Herod sad. He didn't want to kill John the Baptist, but he went through with it anyway and he beheaded him. Right? All these men were killed or, or sought to be killed because of their faithfulness to God. And the people that were seeking to kill them would never have defined it like that. That's important for us to keep in the back of our minds as we continue to unpack what it looks like to endure patiently. We need these men and the women in Hebrews 11, right, to serve as faithful witnesses to us. We can gain courage to follow their faithful example and to run the race well. Hebrews 12.1 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is right after Hebrews 11. It's giving us courage. We have this faithful tradition and we live in a time very different than James' audience, right? We live in a time where we have the full canon of Scripture now. So we have the New Testament saints like Paul, like Peter, Like all of the martyred apostles, we know from tradition that can give us confidence to endure. But we also have biographies. I highly recommend that you read good biographies of saints who have endured patiently the persecution of this world because it will give you courage to see that they constantly trusted God. It was nothing within their own strength. It was all them trusting God. And so you're going to say, okay, got the picture 
But a lot of times God doesn't show us everything that's going on in these situations, does he? We don't get the behind the scenes look in our life to see what God is doing all the time. And I'm reminded of this guy that I watch once in a while. He's this business expert and he comes into failing businesses and he invests his own money into them and he's in charge of this whole process. And so here's, there's always this one point in the process when he's walking through with these failing businesses There's like a fork in the road that goes left and one right. It's either going to fail or it's going to work. And it's always this point where these people get to the process of where they have no idea what this guy's doing. And it makes them very nervous. And he always says to them, well, your best thinking got you to where you were. Let me take you through the process of how to make this work. And he says, trust the process. And that's where we end up with God. We end up at this fork in the road where we go, God, I have no idea what you're doing here. This feels very uncomfortable. It's very scary But you need to trust God's process. Point number four, trust God's process. God's process is something that he rarely gives us the full peek into. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says it perfectly. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts, James in verse 11 is calling us to remain steadfast regardless of our point of view, regardless of what we see. And I think he's doing this because in verse 11, it starts out with saying, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And then he says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And Job is such an incredible story. We get the behind behind the scenes look into God in a way that we don't in the entirety of Christianity, entirety of scripture. We get this peek into the operation of what God's doing in Job's life, and it's fascinating. It's nothing like we probably would think God would operate. And the same thing's going on in our life many times. We have no idea what God is doing. His ways are higher than our ways. And James is kind of bookending his book here because we're almost done with the book of James. Remember in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, verse 11, it continues, and it says, And you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Like I said, we have the luxury of seeing God's purpose from behind the scenes in Job's story. But guess who didn't get to see that? Job. He's going through some of the worst stuff we can imagine to his family, to his body, in fellowship with these friends who are spouting off wrong ideas about God. And he remains steadfast through that. Yes, he overstepped in presuming to understand the knowledge and purpose of God in some areas, and God certainly comes in and rebukes him for doing that. I recommend reading chapters 38 through 42 once in a while just to reset on how God owes us no explanation for what he's doing in our lives. That's his response to Job. He doesn't tell him everything he's doing and why he's doing. He says, let me tell you about who I am. Where were you, Job, when I did all of this? But Job, he did remain steadfast. and We can learn from this. Although we don't know exactly what God's doing in the middle of persecution, we don't know all the things going on behind the scenes spiritually, we can for sure understand some purposes of the Lord from Job's suffering. I want to give you five divine purposes of the Lord as we 
end our time here together, just quickly go through these, just to encourage you that no matter what's going on in your life, if you're experiencing persecution, these five things are always true. These are always true, and we can always come back to these to understand that God, although we don't know the process, God's going to finish things the same way for all of us. So remaining steadfast will, A, increase our faith. Our faith will be increased from remaining steadfast amidst persecution. Verse 2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is Job's conclusion after all of this. Remaining steadfast will be, raise our view of God. Verse 3 says, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Our view of God should be high enough to allow for some mysteries of God. We're not going to know everything there is to know about who God is. We're going to be doing a class starting in January on the attributes of God, and we're going to talk about who God is the best that we can, but every time that we do, we arrive at the cliff in the chasm of what we can understand as a finite being with an infinite God. We have to raise our view of God to trust him during times that we don't understand. Remaining steadfast will, C, increase our blessings. Verse 12 says, And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. Your blessings, these increased blessings, they may not come in this lifetime, but they will come. They will come one day when you're face-to-face with the Lord for all of eternity. You'll be blessed by being steadfast. God promises that. Remaining steadfast will, D, showcase God's compassion and mercy. We want to showcase God's compassion and mercy. You remaining steadfast in the middle of persecution can save the people around you who are persecuting you. Story after story has been told of this happening. That's why it's important to read some biographies. Captors and prison guards and persecutors, they come to know the Lord Jesus because they see the compassion of the Lord and the mercy of the Lord to the people being persecuted. This doesn't make any sense. Why in the world would you be calm and peaceful during this, enduring this while I'm beating you or while I'm taking away your livelihood? Because I trust the Lord and he is good and you need to repent and put your trust in him also. Verse 16 says, And after this Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Sometimes the blessings come in this life, sometimes the next. But God is certainly compassionate and merciful. Remaining steadfast will E, glorify God. Glorify God. Verse 11 says, Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before. All these people are coming around Job and ate bread with him in his house and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. All the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Ultimately, God gets the glory. We don't know all the reasons why God said to Satan in chapter 1, verse 8, right at the beginning of, the jo- of Job, have you considered my servant Job? God sought Satan to go pursue Job. That's unbelievable. God's ways are higher than our ways, but the end of it is God's glory. At the end of Job, who is glorified? God. God is glorified. Job's faith is increased His view of God is hired. He's never going to respond to God again the way he did after God responded to him the way that he did. His blessings were increased. 
And God's compassion and mercy were on display, and ultimately, everyone around him glorified God. To be patiently enduring persecution, you and I must know God and trust him. We must know him and his word. In the fourth grade, to endure hostility from my classmates at recess, I patiently waited for the bell. But we can patiently endure persecution as believers because we wait for that trumpet. We wait for God to send his son to reign forever. Stephen, who, when he was being stoned to death, he looked up and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. When we're being persecuted, we don't need to suck it up. We need to look up like Stephen did. We need to look to the author and perfecter of our faith to give us the faith to endure patiently. Please pray with me. Lord, we pray that you would give us the faith to trust you in all situations, Lord. And we pray that we would take the encouragement that we've heard here from this, this passage here in James 5, that it wouldn't just be information to us, but we would truly pray about it. We truly think about it. It would change us to become more like Jesus Christ. And we would trust you. We would have such a long vision of our existence. We would think of this life as a light momentary affliction, as Paul said. We would think of it as a vapor, as James says. We would consider the brevity of our life and understand that there's nothing greater than to be with you. And we can be with you now by being in your word and being with your people and serving you through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we will be with you in your presence when you come back or you take us home for the rest of eternity. Lord, help us to have such a high view of you, to view you as so high and mighty that it just minimizes everything else in our lives. Father, I pray that you would help us to go through persecution while you promise us that it will happen. And it may happen on different scales at different times, but Lord, as you ramp up this world, and the heat against the Christian faith, against the Christian church in this country is turned up. I pray that we would be found faithfully, patiently enduring persecution. That we would not abandon your word, being frantic in a time of need, but we would lean into it all the more and we would be peaceful. We would be a witness. We would be like these witnesses that we gain courage from. We would give courage to our fellow brothers and sisters by how we respond to the way we will be persecuted. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for your word. I pray that you would change us to be more like Jesus Christ. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.